You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're being in Psalm 51. We're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and then Romans chapter 1. So if you if you want to jot these down, don't be afraid of the table of contents, but in that blue Bible, that's, that's page 271 is Psalm 51, 149 is 2 Samuel 11, and 547 is Romans 1. So don't be afraid if, uh, if you've never opened a Bible uh, to look into the table of contents, but I want to help you so you'll, you'll follow the trek that we're on today, spending most of our time on page 271, Psalm 51, then 149 and 547. Before I read this Psalm 51, I, I want to just kind of invite you to reflect with me something that means a great deal to me. Uh, I, I haven't been around for the last three weeks, and if you didn't notice, cool, that's, that's fine. I, I, as I share with people, uh, the, the, the New Testament says that as a pastor, I'm just to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, so I'm basically more like the water boy than I am the coach, and say, hey, here, how can I help out? And so, if you don't miss me when I'm gone, that's, that's a good thing. That, that means, hey, you, you're doing great. That's all I'm here for. I'm the water boy. But every time I get a break from doing this, I remember why I am doing this. And I want you, more than anything else, every time we get together and we open the Bible together, I want you to leave this place thinking to yourself, I want to live for this Jesus that this Jonathan is yelling about. <laughs> right? I want to encounter this Jesus, not just here when someone's in the front of the room with an open Bible and shouting. I want to encounter this Jesus. I want to walk with this Jesus. And my prayer is that every time we do this, 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 is, this is the hope, we open this Bible together and God meets us in his word. And my prayer is that next week when we do it again, because we're, in, we're incredibly unoriginal like that, when we open this Bible again, between now and then, that next week it won't be the next time that you open this Bible. That you will get such a taste for the God of this Bible that you will want to walk with him this week. That you will crack this book open again. So if we pass you one out, please take that book home. That, this is our gift to you. Take God's word home with you. Crack it open. Get a taste of how good the God of this Bible is. Such that you will not be satisfied to encounter the God of this book you will not be satisfied unless you encounter him before I see you again next week in this place. And whatever help I may offer you on a Sunday, whatever encouragement, whatever, whatever encouragement I might offer by pointing you to Jesus, you'll begin to realize is available to you every single moment of every single day. So beginning in Psalm 51, I'm going to read this psalm for us, hopefully letting it become the meditation of our own hearts Beginning with the summary of Psalm 51, you'll see in your ESV or other Bibles. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word, and my prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very words of God for God's people. I want to devote the next couple of weeks to walking through Psalm 51. And I want, as you've read through it already, and kind of gotten a feel for what it's about, I I want you to begin to reflect with me on what real and true repentance is. We'll define some of these terms as we go on. But I want you to begin, as is our custom, hopefully during the summer, to begin to reflect on how the Psalms are the Bible's guide to self-expression. The goal of the Christian life, as maybe some of you have, met, been, have heard, and maybe the goal of walking with Jesus has been misrepresented to you, isn't to repress negative feelings or to repress negative emotions, but instead it's, it's to express them in a way that glorifies God. In a culture that says that basically you should express whatever you feel, regardless of what anyone else says or does around you. You express it, you let it out, you assert yourself. So as I invited you in the first couple of weeks of this journey, Psalm chapter 6 is the first of the seven penitential psalms. That is the psalms of penitence. And I invited you in chapter 6 to to consider that I want you to get good at feeling bad. One of the greatest lies I believe the enemy inflicts upon our culture and inflicts even upon people who would call themselves Christians is that to follow Jesus is to live a life absent and free from any negative feelings, any negative experiences, any suffering, any sorrow. 
And that's just a lie that will keep you from loving Jesus for the suffering he endured that transformed the worst possible day when the only innocent man had something awful happen to him. His friends betrayed him. He was nailed on a cross. And Christians come along and look at that suffering and they don't go, oh no, they say it was a good Friday. It was a good for despite the suffering. And so today as we walk through this in the next couple of weeks, I want to be careful as I parse these words out. I want you to get good at feeling guilty. I want you to get good at feeling guilty. The feelings of guilt, I want you to handle well. They are after you. They will come. And I, I suspect that you're in one of two places in this room, in which case you may be on either of these ends of the spectrum fairly bad when it comes to feeling guilty. On one hand, you probably, half of you, lean further to the end of when you feel guilt, it immediately leads you into feelings of shame and despair. And the minute you feel guilty, you, you slide into a pit of despair and, and you begin to loathe your life and wonder, like, am I, am I even worth anything? Do, does, should I even go on living this life? And so when you recognize your own flaws and failures, which life has a funny way of exposing every single day, you slide in the midst of experiencing those inadequacies coming to light into feelings of despair and shame and hopelessness. But maybe on the other side, you probably, if, if, that doesn't, if that doesn't kind of resonate with you, you probably slide on the other side to when I say I want you to feel good at, at feeling guilty, you, you, your first thought is guilty about what? And you err on the side of when I talk about guilt and the weight of sin and I want you to feel, I want you to begin to get good about feeling sorrow over your sin, your first response is to go, I'm not that bad. My sin is not that bad. Have you seen other people? And I want to encourage you, both of those extremes are bad ways to handle guilt. And to fall to either one of those extremes is to be bad at feeling guilty. Because you either wallow in your guilt and begin to wallow in the prideful experience of despair. Woe is me. No one has felt as awful as me. No one has suffered as I have suffered. Which is the most prideful thing you can say other than the other side, which is to say, I'm not that bad. I thank God I'm not as bad as other people. So the Pharisee, the publican would say, excuse me, the Pharisee would say in light of the publican's penitence, according to Jesus' story. So I want you to get good at feeling guilty, and I believe this psalm is an invitation to do that. It's an invitation for the person who's encountered God to understand guilt. Now I say we'll do this over the next couple of weeks because this is, quite frankly, like other parts of the Bible, that just scare me. They scare me. And so I hope to slow down and do a better job. Anytime I walk up to a psalm or a, a text of the Scripture that I, I'm just, frankly, intimidated by, I'm, I'm just not going to do a very good job. And you'll remember a couple years ago, that for me is a couple of psalms. One of them is Psalm 22, 23, and 24. A couple years ago, we tackled Psalm 22. I took two weeks at it. It's one of the most impactful psalms to me in the Scripture, and I was afraid to preach it because I'm just scared. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not possibly going to get this right. I, I, I can't possibly scratch even the surface of all that's there. The, the cry of Jesus from the cross to quote Psalm 22, and then the very detailed account of a prophetic word in Psalm 22 of what Jesus would experience on the cross. Like I, That's just too much for me. Who, right? Like Paul says, like, who... Who, who's, who's up to these kinds of things? Who is, who is capable? Who is up to these kinds of challenges? 
And then Psalm 24. The other one I'm scared of, obviously, is Psalm 23. One of the most common psalms. But here's the other one. It's Psalm chapter 51. This psalm has the potential, if this becomes the song you know by heart, to grant you the greatest joy and the greatest hope in Jesus that I could even imagine. Now, in my fear of Psalm 51, I came across the words of my great hero, dead hero Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's known. As he was commenting on Psalm 51, listen to Charles Spurgeon's words. Speaking of Psalm 51, this may just be an outward encouragement just to me, but that's fine. You can eavesdrop. He says, I, pos- I postponed expounding it week after week. Amen. <laughs> Feeling more and more my inability for the work. He's talking about doing what I'm about to do. Unable to do it. Often I sat down to it and rose up again without having penned a line. Have you ever had writer's block? This is what he experienced. Such a psalm, Psalm 51, maybe wept over, maybe absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? So my invitation to you is to join me over the next three weeks at blushing in defeat. Because even the Prince of Preachers says the contents of this psalm are so weighty, so deep, and yet the joy that comes from it is so amazing. It's an invitation into a very dark place, namely, the contents of your own heart. So when I was in elementary school, uh, I, lived on, uh, I lived in a neighborhood for a few years where we lived, our house was situated at the bottom of the hill of the neighborhood and on the corner. Well, why is that important? For those of you who ever lived at the bottom of a hill of a neighborhood in the city, uh, you, you will be very familiar with what I'm about to describe. At the bottom of the hill in a city neighborhood are things that the, the city has installed into the sides of the road and the curb to manage flooding. They have installed these big drainage gutters, these big drainage gutters on the side of the road. And so for a few years of my life, uh, we lived in a neighborhood, the bottom of the hill, on the corner, and at the bottom of the hill you had these gutters on the sides of the road. And while Stephen Hawking's would be published about the time I was discovering this, his theoretical physicist's perspective on the, the possible existence of black holes, a theoretical object with such density and gravity that it sucked everything into it, I mean, you, you, you're laughing because you, you lived at the bottom of the hill. It was easy for me to believe, not because I was a theoretical physicist at second grade, but because I believe one of those theoretical objects that sucked every single good thing in life into it was the gutter at the bottom of the hill on the side of the road. And for myself and my brother and all the guys in our neighborhood, every baseball, every wiffle ball, every football, every golf ball, even, even remote control cars sucked into this black hole, this vortex of dark doom. The worst place that sucked all the good things into it. Why did I tell you that I live on the corner? Because you know at the corner of the street, 
the bottom of a hill in a neighborhood. There is not one dark vortex black hole that sucks in every good thing. There is two. There are two evil dark places that suck in every good thing. And we lost a ton of stuff until one day, my brother and our friends, we lost a Nerf turbo football. Now, I know that means nothing to you. I know that means nothing to you. But that, at the moment, that was like the Cadillac, I don't know, the Tesla, the, the greatest possible football that a person could own. A Nerf, there was commercials on, before Nerf started making like guns and projectiles really well, they, they made balls. And the Nerf turbo football was the pièce de resistance. It was perfect. And we lost it in the very first day we owned it into this vortex of doom. So my brother and his friends got the brilliant idea to borrow my dad's crowbar and to pry open the manhole on the top of this gutter because it was, we just lost too many things. Now, as you look at me now, I'm, I'm about six foot three and I'm, I'm kind of taller or bigger than most of you in this room. And so it's a bit hard to believe, but at this time, I was easily the smallest of my friends, including my brother, who's always been much bigger than me, and all of his friends who were older. And I was the youngest and smallest, which made me particularly vulnerable for what happened next. And my brother and his friends said, so they, they opened up the manhole, looked down into this dark vortex, and they said, we're going to lower you down into it. You really, you couldn't even see the bottom. I mean, like, you're going to lower, what is this? We're going to lower you down into it. There was one time they lowered me down by my feet. I mean, like, they grabbed my feet into this dark vortex. We're going to lower you into this. And I was like, because I'm a younger brother, okay? At this time, I didn't know how evil older siblings are, right? And if you're an older sibling in the room, shame on you. Shame. Lots of shame on you. And my brother, like a good older brother, knew how to get me, the courageous one, really the foolish one, the naive one, to do for him what he was afraid to do himself. And he begins to encourage me, and he says this amazing thing. I don't remember like, the exact words, but here's what I remember. And he said, don't worry. Whatever you find down there, we're right here with you. Like, I'm going to send you to this dark place, Whatever you find down there, I'm going to be right here with you. And as silly as that story is, Psalm 51 is an invitation into a dark and awful place. Your own heart. An invitation to be introduced to the most destructive person in your life. You. An invitation to become familiar with the person who has betrayed you, disappointed you, and let you down more than anyone else. It's an invitation to be introduced to the person who's lied to you, deceived you, and misled you more than anyone else. It is the person you see every single time you look in the mirror. And I want to walk us through this because, as we see in the first words, that he appeals to the mercy of God, the steadfast love, and again, the abundant mercy of God. As we encounter this and explore this very dark place, namely the contents of our own soul, there is good news for you. God says, whatever you find down there, don't worry. I know it's dark. Whatever you find down there, I'll be right here with you. So I want you to join me. We're going to read the story. There's, we're going to spend most of our time this week in just the very first 
few verses. Now, in the original uh, of all the Psalms, the headings or the, the directions that you see that for me are in large or in all caps in your ESV, maybe different in your translation, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. And those are actually the first two verses in, in the Hebrew Bible. Those are, these are not just uh, a heading, but they're actually part of the psalm, and all the other ones are this way. And that's why, when uh, depending on your translation, the verses may be actually numbered differently. But, but here in the ESV, if you may have one of those blue ESVs, you'll see it's not part of the, the psalm, namely numbered in verse, but it's just simply there. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, who's Nathan? Let's find out. The prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you will, join me in I want to just walk through this, and we'll see two things today. First, I want you to see the backdrop of this psalm, and then out of that backdrop, I want you to see the character and nature of God. True repentance, as outlined in this psalm, will involve a few things, but the psalm points out at least three primary things. First is the character and nature of God, who God is. Second, the character and nature of human, of human beings, their sin and sinfulness. And then, lastly, we'll talk on the third week, what the interaction of those things propels us to be and to do in the world. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read a chunk of this. And I want you to, if this is familiar to you, I want you to begin to maybe even just kind of zoom out and begin to listen as though you've never heard it before. You see, in chapter 10, if you look, the heading for chapter 10, David defeats Ammon and Syria. And if you want to, you can read through that, I hope, this week. And, but verse 9, you'll see Joab notices there's a battle. This is one of David's special mighty men. And the Syrians, in verse 15, set up against Israel with the Ammonites. But something amazing happens. Listen to verse 18 of chapter 10. And the Syrians, a great army at that time, fled before Israel. Why? David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shabak, the commander of the, armor, of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Did you hear that? The setting for chapter 11 is that David is coming off the greatest victory of his life. Up to this point, he has defeated one of the most prominent military forces in the world at that time. This is like, this is it. This is the best of days for David the king and Israel. He's the best king anyone had ever seen. Now remember, as we always do, I want to remind you, David, like so many characters in the Old Testament, is simply an appetizer for Jesus. An appetizer. And I have to, I have to qualify what I mean by that. Like when you go to a Mexican food restaurant and they give you chips and salsa as an appetizer and you eat so much that you're not even hungry, that's not an appetizer, okay? There's another, like that's, that's no longer an hors d'oeuvre. There's another uh, French word. It's called entree, right? That's, that's what you've done with that, okay? <laughs> not talking about that. I'm talking about like when you're so hungry and someone brings out an hors d'oeuvre that's beautiful, it's plated well, but it's tiny. And it's just so delicious, but frankly, so small that it leaves you wanting more. That's David. That's David. So, so they're in this position where they're like, David's the greatest, this is going to be the greatest thing. Ever. We're going to be the greatest kingdom. He's the greatest leader. And what you'll find through the rest, through the rest of the Old Testament, that he's, he's really just an appetizer. 
And frankly, I would say every other godly leader, including myself, I was just kind of an appetizer. Down deep is really dissatisfying. You should kind of be like, eh, I was hoping for more. Why? Because these, these are simply appetizers to make us hungry, ravished even for the satisfying work of Jesus. So that's who David is, right? When we're at this point where you'd be like, this is good. This is amazing. Verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in, excuse me, at Jerusalem. Side note here, this is what I share with many men, I hope, on a regular basis. There's nothing more dangerous to a man, maybe even a human, but especially to a man, and we see that illustrated here, than isolation and boredom. Isolation and boredom. It's almost as if David's kind of having like a midlife crisis, and, and he's achieved so much, and yet there's still something missing. And, and we see one of the most dangerous places that any human can be is when they're isolated, separated, but also bored. That is not taking responsibility. That's where David is. Instead of being out with battle, he sent other people to fight for him. Instead of taking responsibility for his people, for his community, he sends someone else to bear that responsibility. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And we get some explanation about what, why she was bathing. Evidently, just according to Old Testament law, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That is, this is where this psalm invites us to be very transparent about rhythms of life. And so... Evidently, Bathsheba had been experiencing her monthly period, a time of menstruation. It's a, a beautiful thing. I don't want you to be, if you're grossed, off, uh, grossed out of this, I would encourage you every single month. Uh, I, I, I lean on some, some great teachers here in this who have helped me, but every single month a woman's body tells a parable that through the shedding of blood comes the creation of life. And so she's just experienced this. And, and this is amazing because at this particular time, this is religious and spiritual significance. There was a ritual she was going through in which she was preparing her heart for a season of bringing new life. And in that and this, this is, again, this isn't, this isn't an accident. This is, the, the, the narrator here is telling us this story for a very good reason. So, as they warned him, this is not Bathsheba took her and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness to prepare for a season where she would be fertile to bring new life. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now this is, remember, Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That is, kick back, relax. But for David especially, enjoy the company, the intimacy of your own wife. And Uriah went out from the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord 
and did not go down to his house. Don't miss that. David, having been caught in his adulterous move towards Bathsheba, takes his step to cover his own actions. I want to make a couple important observations here. We'll, we'll dig more deeply into these in the next couple weeks, but it's important, right? Okay, so I love Jeff Buckley. I don't know, the singer of, right? Hallelujah, right? Shrek made that song famous. Imagine that. <laughs> Didn't see that. I liked that song before Shrek. I was in it before it was cool. Great singer-songwriter, this Jeff Buckley. He is a terrible biblical theologian. He says, you saw her bathing on the roof. It's important here, okay? Because many people have used that misconception to in some way heap shame on Bathsheba and somehow kind of like make her complicit in what happens. Now we'll get to this over the next couple of weeks, but notice that is not what is said here. Who was on the roof? Did you catch that? David. And from the roof in verse 2, he saw a woman bathing. It's important. It's not nothing. It's important. <laughs> like, this is, this is something where she was, she was invited and sent for by the king. Now, I, this is where I want to invite you to, to, to think critically about this. She may have been in a situation where she had no ability to say no. This is the king, the one God has ordained, and to disobey him is to disobey God. And so she was invited in to a place where she was outmatched she had no standing no authority and david took advantage of the situation and to cover his tracks for taking advantage of this woman what did he do he tried to cover his tracks by getting uriah to come home man if i can get uriah to come home and if he would be intimate with his wife then, as he goes back to war, she'll be pregnant and everyone will go, oh, that's great, that's awesome, Uriah and Bathsheba are having a baby. But what does Uriah do? David invites him and he says like, hey, how are things going? How is the war? <laughs> Friend, please, if you know any soldiers, any people who have put their life on the line for you, at, anyway, please don't ask questions like that. How's the war? Right? He does that, and, and, and for whatever reason, Uriah is a more noble man than David. And so when he says, go home, Uriah's like, I'm, I'm going to sleep outside with the servants. So verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his own house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his own house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your own house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Remember we learned this in the Gospel of John. Those are tents, temporary dwellings. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, this is an oath for me. Like I swear or I'll be cursed if. He says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next David takes the next step, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he, that is David, made him, that is Uriah, drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, 
set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? And did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. The greatest understatement in all of the Bible, the end of the chapter. But the thing, as though that it wasn't multiple things, really just one, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Did you catch this? He's saying, his, Nathan is telling David a parable. There were two men, a rich man and a poor man, and a poor man owned this one little ewe lamb. And did you hear it like, I mean... I know, you, you know your, your furry friend you think is family. God bless you for that. Did you catch this? This little ewe lamb, this little lamb was a part of the family as if it was a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man who had tons of flocks, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you 
king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And as if, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, of a son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want to stop right there. This is the context for the psalm we just read. This is the moment where likely David sat and penned Psalm 51. And the words that we just read together are a reflection of this event. I want to invite you just to ask a question. Because this may be the most gut-wrenching psalm. And yet I want to encourage you because it's the most uplifting and hope-filled psalm. And I want you to get good at feeling guilty. Ask yourself this question. What is your greatest regret? What is the thing or even things that you regret, you regret the most? What is the thing that you would be the most embarrassed if everyone in this room knew it about you? In fact, what's the thing you're praying that no one, your friends, your spouse, the people in this room would find out? You're praying, please don't let that come to light. Unless you can think through those kinds of things, you might miss out where David was. In deep regret and deep shame, look what he does. He says, I've sinned against the Lord, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. In this moment of the deepest regret, the deepest remorse, the awareness of the worst possible thing that he could have done. Did you catch that? The prophet Nathan says, look, you had everything. You had everything you needed. And there's a thing about sin. Sin exposes what you genuinely love and genuinely trust in. The place where you will sin is the place of exposure. It's a place of showing what you really believe. And penitence, or repentance as we talk about it, I want to define here, is the feeling or expressing humble or regretful pain or sorrow for sins or offenses. I'm just quoting Merriam-Webster here. Feeling or expressing humble or regretful pain for sorrow for sins or offenses. Now it's interesting, because I didn't just quote the Bible, I just quoted Merriam-Webster. And they use the word there, 
It's really important for those of us who read the Bible, and that is the word sins. Or offenses, but it uses the word sin. Now, this is important because we want to define that term as well. Sin, what is a sin? It's an immoral act considered to be a transgression against what? Divine law. Now, that's important because to even feel remorse over sin is something specific we want to think about. So, for example, if you rebel against, I don't know, the rules of a football game, it's what? A penalty. If you rebel against the rules of a, of, a, of a basketball game, it's what? It's a foul. If you rebel against the laws of our state or nation, what is it? It's a crime, right? There's names for this. And each name points to the uh, offending party and the one who is offended. And note the word that's used here in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but the word that's repeated in Psalm 51 is that word sin. And when we look through that word, we see the character and nature of God. Sin is an immoral act, a rebellion, not necessarily against a law or against a game. It's a rebellion against God himself. And listen what has to happen for David in this first verse and the second verse. Because God is perfect, righteous, and holy, one can only appeal to his mercy and steadfast love. Did you catch that? Back to Psalm 51. In this setting where he has had his deepest, darkest secret, the thing he would likely regret till the day he dies, brought before his face, his first words are the most important, and they point to the very nature of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? This is so important. He doesn't appeal to his guilty conscience. He doesn't appeal to his merit. He doesn't appeal to his ability to make amends. He doesn't appeal to his right standing. What does he appeal to? The only thing he can appeal to. Your steadfast love. I love the NIV's translation is your unfailing love. Because apart from the mercy of God, I love in the second half of that, the abundant mercy of God, our transgressions are ever before us. And he appeals to the mercy and the steadfast, unfailing love of God because that's the only thing he can appeal to. You see, the steadfast love of God is the only basis of hope for forgiveness. Now, what you see next is a, a list of these characteristics of who God is and a right view of God from this. We begin to, I hope we'll begin to inform the way we see ourselves and we see, when we see sin. But apart from this, we will be misled. We'll be bad at feeling the feel, experiencing the feelings of guilt. And we'll run to despair or we'll run to self-righteousness. But if when you begin to realize that the steadfast love of God is His attribute purely and perfectly, then the feelings of guilt over sin allow us to run to Him for hope and not run from Him. Think of it this way. Although we fail in sin, God does not fail in mercy. Not if, but when we fail in sin, God does not fail in mercy. Now this is provocative. We'll dig more deeply into this over the next couple of weeks, but did you, did you catch that in, in 2 Samuel? There, there's an offensive nature to God's grace, right? He's like, this is the worst thing ever. And what does he say? I've sinned against God. And then immediately... Nathan's like, God forgives you, right? And so here, here's the thing. 
If you're bad at feeling guilt and you're bad at understanding the gospel, the good news of God's mercy and his sovereign grace for you, then this, this will offend you both ways. So if you're on one side of the room, maybe you've been offended, maybe you've been perpetrated against, right? Your first thought is what? Like, no! You let, he, did, he did all this? You should destroy him. And that completely misses that God's mercy over sinners is complete over all sinners. And so if you're in this side of the room, maybe you tend to find your identity as a victim. You hear that and you're like, that's offensive. You should crush this man. But maybe you're on the other side of the room. Maybe you're more conservative in your ideology and you hear that and what do you, what do you feel? You're like, you're going to let him get away with it. And his, like, his grace, God's grace, communicated through Nathan to David is just as offensive but for opposite reasons. You let him get away with that? And don't miss it. Like The radical grace of God is offensive for everyone. It is provocative. If I tell you God forgives sinners and that doesn't stir you either to rage or at least to what we do on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, to joyful singing, you haven't heard me. And if you haven't heard me, it's because you're bad at feeling guilty. You've never cried out to God like Psalm 51 knowing that your only hope is God's mercy alone. See, God has committed himself to humans who acknowledge their sin and rely on God's merciful forgiveness and love. The relationship between the nature of God and the nature of human beings here in their sin and sinfulness and in God's holiness is linked together. Did you catch it? Through contrition, a contrite heart, and through confession, agreeing with God. Why? Look, because confession of sin must be comprehensive and far-reaching and complete so that our experience of God's grace is comprehensive and far-reaching and complete. And so he uses multiple words to describe God's character. Did you catch that? He's merciful, abundant in, in love, abundant in mercy, and he keeps going. The ability to cleanse, ability to forgive, ability to blot out and wash out all of his guilt and sin, the ability to judge, the ability to know, know things, the ability to restore him in truth and even in his own heart, and the ability to, to through sacrifice, we see in verse 7, through hyssop, that is the, the, the plant that, 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 that a priest would have used to blot out or, or cover up a person in the sacrificial lamb's blood and wipe upon the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelites. All of these things God is able to do. God has power to do, but they're linked together through what? By agreeing with God about sin. Confession is the link between the graciousness of God and the graveness of sin. I love that. David appeals at once to the mercy of God, even before he mentions his sin. The way I would summarize it is this. Bring your worst very worst. God will bring his best. God will bring his best. We know this is true. First, John tells it this way. If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. You hear the language of Psalm 51? Cleanse us. Like a little bit? No. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you're on the other side of the room, remember this. If you say, I have not sinned, right? Like, I'm not that bad. Then what happens? We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The Bible refers to David as a man after God's own, heart, God's own heart, which is a radical and provocative view of God's grace, isn't it? 
But understand, David was a man after God's own heart, not because in his darkest days he held on to God. It's because in his darkest days, God and his steadfast, unfailing love held on to him. Let me word it another way. There are so many consequences because of sinful choices we make. There were for David. Did you catch that? Before the, end of the story of David is over, his oldest son Amnon rapes his half-sister sister Tamar, and his other son Absalom kills Amnon. I don't know what drama you encountered across your Thanksgiving table this year, but this is bad. This is the worst. This is what sin does. It has lasting consequences, real consequences that we will face until Jesus comes back. But losing God's love is not one of them. It's not one of them. I love this. A New Testament scholar, Robert Capon, puts it this way. Think of what it would be like if in the thick of our sin we were told that we stood uncondemned by a love that would not let us go. I want you to be good at feeling guilty. David tried to cover it up, and maybe you are too, and I would just invite you, like, hey, how's that, how's that working for you? <laughs> Trying to make up for the negative feelings of things you've done. How's that working for you? I want to end on this thought. David appeals to the mercy of God because when he brings his worst, God brings his best. But as we read things like 1 John 1, 9, and we realize the mercy that's poured onto David, even in the darkest of his days, there's something amazing we see. And I've got to kind of mess with your brain before we land on this. You see, God's mercy is not just to forgive us of sin, but it's also to reveal sin. So, so we, could re- we could regularly, uh, we could like read 1 John 1, 9, and like robots think like, well, it's a formula. I confess, he forgives. I confess, he forgives. And, and I have to keep confessing, and he gets to keep forgiving. Yeah, I have to keep confessing, and, he, and here's, here's what we would say, is like the radical grace of God is like, there is no sin that you have committed or could commit. There is no sin that you have confessed or could com- confess that Jesus has not paid to forgive. Not a single one. And to confess them, to agree comprehensively, as he says, my sinfulness, my iniquity, right, my transgressions, they're in front, I can't get away from them. And the comprehensiveness of his view of sin paves the way for his comprehensive experience radically of God's grace. Even though the consequences of his sin would be felt, the consequence that he never felt was the removal of God's grace. And so you might be tempted to think that God's mercy is a response to your confession. Right? God's like waiting for you to confess and then he'll forgive you. It is that, but it's more. You see, the fact that you were even aware of your sin is evidence of God's mercy. The fact that you're even aware of your sin is God's mercy. This was read a couple weeks ago. Romans chapter 1 gives us this picture, verse 18, the wrath of God. The wrath, right? Because he's holy and perfect. And so you and I experience wrath and mercy and and compassion badly because we we do it in a mixed up fashion. But God's perfect and righteous and holy and his wrath is also holy. So the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And how is God's wrath displayed? Well, if we read a little bit later in verse 24, God's wrath is displayed how? Therefore, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Get that. God's wrath is simply that he let them go. If my daughter today runs toward the rushing traffic here of East 10th, I'm going to tackle her. And you might think, that's unloving. A man who would tackle a little girl. Who do you think you are? But I would rather tackle her than to see her crushed. And I will tackle her, and it will hurt. And she will wonder why. And she will think I am mean and cold. And she'll probably be injured in some small way. But I'm going to do it because I love her. What if you and I saw my daughter, one or two of them, running out into traffic, and I just said, she's got to learn somehow. She's got to figure it out on her own. That would be wrath, would it not? You see, God's wrath is to leave you in your sin. And even though I want want you to begin to feel the sorrow over your sin, and that will be deeply negative, and it will hurt, and you'll say, God, this feels miserable. I want you to realize even the awareness of your own sin is evidence of his mercy. He loves you enough not to watch you burn. And he has loved you enough to send his son to take your place. And even in the painful, sorrowful way that we are aware of how little we deserve his grace, even this sorrowful feeling is but a moment that opens our eyes to his deep love and grace. And so friend, if you feel the weight of your own sin and sinfulness, I know you you want me to take that off of you, right? You want me to be like, you're fine. And I want to be like, no, you're worse than you think you are. But God's grace is better than you could have ever imagined. And the the more comprehensive you see your sinfulness, not into despair and not into self-righteousness, the more comprehensive His grace will overwhelm you. Friend, I don't want you to feel bad about your sin for its own sake. I want you to realize you're invited to feel bad about your sin because Jesus has paid for it. And you can today, today, you can appeal to the mercy of God and the steadfast love. I love it. The abundant mercy of God. And here's what he'll do. He'll completely blot out all your transgressions. This will blow your mind. Remember my question? What's the thing you regret the most? You regret the most. Remember that? Remember that moment? The thing you resent and regret the most? Because of Christ, God doesn't even remember it. Because of Christ, that regret, that awful thing, that you're looking to all sorts of things to feel better about, that fear and that shame and that guilt, in Christ, God has blotted it out. And to admit that sin for what it is as a rebellion against God's good character is to experience His grace And he has chosen to separate us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. Friend, today you can experience the mercy of God. I know it's going to hurt for a minute. It seems scary. You remember the silly words of my manipulative older brother? 
I know it's dark down there, but whatever you find, I'm right here for you. Friend, we have a good and better shepherd and prophet. Our older brother Jesus has looked at us and invited us to reflect on our own sin and sinfulness, our unworthiness, and he says, look deeply into it. I don't care how dark it seems, because whatever you find down there, don't worry. I'm right here for you. Today, you can experience the mercy and steadfast love of God And it seems like looking into darkness, but it's actually an invitation to experience his mercy. Might we do that today? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not abandoned us. You have not let us run away, but instead you have sent your son to win us back. You have bankrupted heaven and earth to send your son to chase down the lost sheep that is us in this room. And we thank you for that. God, we recognize this is a a favor and mercy we don't deserve. And so for some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've they've been invited into into feeling negatively about themselves. I I ask that you would grant them courage, grant them the ability to, to do that because they know the character and nature of of their creator, of their redeemer and sustainer. Maybe today this will be the first that some in this room, they'll confess their own sin. They'll, they'll realize their, their efforts to, at self-salvation to deliver themselves from guilt and shame and regret have failed. And maybe today they'll, they'll begin to pass on the appetizer so that they would be deeply satisfied by the work of Jesus to draw us near to the Father. But maybe for the rest of us, we just tend to slide into despair because of our sin, or we we slide into self-righteousness to get past it. Would you begin to remind us that to see our sin and sinfulness and its darkness and to feel the sorrow over that sin is a temporary and fleeting moment that leads to the deepest and greatest joy in Christ. That there is no sin that we could commit that Jesus has not died to pay for and blot out. There is no sin now that we could confess that would cost us the love and mercy of God. May we boldly and proudly declare this good news. May it overflow into a deep transparency and truthfulness in our innermost being. We would agree with you about our sins so that we could agree with you about your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.